You're listening to The Real Enneagram Podcast, a spiritual quest brought to you by the Institute for Conscious Being. Well, welcome back. We're happy to have you with us today. I'm joined here by the usual Dr. Joe Howell. Hey, Joe. Hello, Lark. <laughs> I'm Lark Howell, and uh, we're with the Institute for Conscious Being. So we're happy to have you joining us on our podcast today. We have a special guest. It's Mr. Scott Smith. Hey, Scott. Hi, Lark. Hey, Dr. Howell. <laughs> Hello. I'm glad you're here, Scott. We're happy. In the flesh. Right. Without right. a mask. Yeah. On the outside porch. No mask. Yes, you might hear a bubbling of the fountain out in the yard here. So. Or a dog barking. Right, right. Or a so, bird chirping. Yes, so you just know that we're normal, regular people here, and we're just enjoying some beautiful weather and sitting here to relax with Scott. So let me tell you a little bit about Scott. Scott is a part of the ICB team. Scott is a master's level in our scholars program that the Institute for Conscious Being teaches, and we have a yearly training program in the spirituality of the Enneagram. So Scott is on the master's level now, and he also has graciously given us his time and talent this last year, especially during COVID, to help us with our Zooming twice a week and sometimes three times a week with different meetings and presentations that we have. We have an awakenings group on Sunday afternoons, and then we have meetings during the week for our master's and our scholars level. So in between all that, Scott has really helped us a lot doing the Zooming and and coordinating the technology. So Scott, I want to thank you to all of our listeners formally for helping us do all this great stuff. We couldn't have done it without you. Thank you, Lark. I'm happy to be able to do it. Well, it's it's great to have you. And today we're going to be talking to Scott about his soul child. We hear people talking all the time about their ego type, which is important and which is where we have to start. But that's not the end of the story. So we're going to be talking and sharing today about Scott's soul child and how he's discovered him. So, Dr. Howell, I'll let you have it. Okay. Thank you. So, Scott, first of all, I know that you've studied this going on three years now in depth with the Institute for Conscious Being. And what is your concept? from all of your teachings for you of what the soul child actually is? For me, the soul child has a lot to do with my essential self or my essence. as, As we teach in the ICB, when we come into the world, we are in our soul. Our ego hasn't developed yet. If it is present, it's vestigial. And of course, quickly the ego develops because we can't just be our soul. It's a dangerous world and we need the ego to help us navigate. Of course, eventually we forget that we're more than the ego. So for me, the soul child is who I was before my ego developed. And perhaps I could also say that if my ego is who I believe I am, my soul child is who I really am, more essentially. 
course, on another level, I mean, I'm all of that. I'm Scott, and my ego, my soul, and so on and so forth are facets of a whole rather than, you know, it's not like you go to the store and you get, well, I'll take an ego and let me get a discount soul and uh, I'll take, oh, here's got a special on inner critics and you put it all together and then bam, you got a person. I mean, no, you're, you're a person and these are all facets of that person. Okay, so Scott, how did you personally come upon your soul child? Well, the first time I had an experience of my soul child was a little over two years ago. It would have been March of 2019 uh, when I went to my first ICB conference. And leading up to that, I had, I had read your book, Becoming Conscious, and I was aware of the, the concept of the soul child. But it wasn't until we did the backyard exercise at the conference where I first had that felt experience of the soul child, that felt experience of something deeper to myself and deeper, I suppose you could say deeper to reality. Perhaps I'd had glimmers, but that was the first real felt sense of this, this is my soul child, this is my soul. You know, there is, there is something down below the ego and it is experienceable. Well, what was it at the backyard exercise that enabled you in particular to visualize and experience that little being who was once yourself? Say for one, it had just been a long time since I'd thought about myself as a small child of two or three or four. I just hadn't thought about that time of my life in a long while. Yeah. And I was struck by how my soul child was so unbothered by the things that bother me in my ego. He wasn't worried about how he was being perceived. He wasn't worried about appearing competent. He was utterly confident, but he didn't have to um, work at being confident. It just came naturally. He was unaware that of any idea that maybe he shouldn't be confident, <laughs> you know. So, did you see him in your backyard, in your visual exercise of the backyard? I did. <clears throat> I did. He was... The first time I did the backyard exercise, uh, he was in the swing set. And I have to say, the first time I did it, it's not necessarily anything that he said to me in the exercise. It was more his presence, just a presence of... Mm -hmm of strength. You know, I, mm -hmm. I identify as an ego five, and so my soul child is an eight, and, you know, the, the soul eight is very strong, and, and of course gets their strength from the divine. They're in touch with the divine, like all of our soul childs are in their way. And 
And I realize that's where his confidence came from. That's where his strength came from. It's not something he possessed on his own, but it's something he shared in because he was still sensitive to the presence of the divine, which in our egos we lose sight of, we desensitize to. And it's always there. You can't, you can't escape it, but you can certainly numb yourself to it. And I, I believe, in, at least in our culture, that's what happens to all of us as our egos develop and we, we forget that we're more than just the ego. Of course, that's all unconscious. We don't just decide as a four-year-old, well, gosh, I can't get by as a soul. I'd better start building this ego. It all happens unconsciously. But So you think that when you came in contact with him again, that rather than what you saw or what you said yeah. to each other, it was how you felt in his presence. Yeah. And you felt strength and confidence, an inborn strength and confidence in him, a power, if you will. Is that right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Which are characteristics of eight. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And what was it like for you to feel this energy basically for the first time in a long time, right? It was very powerful. It was very emotional. And I, I tend to especially when I was very, very much in my unconscious ego, I would tend to, and I still tend to, I wasn't willing to be vulnerable, I suppose, is what I'm getting at. I wasn't, I wasn't able to just let myself feel what I was feeling. Like in my ego, I was always trying to manage my experience, trying to manage how I was feeling, and I just remember after that exercise just feeling very emotional and very raw and for the first time in a long time I wasn't self-conscious about the way I was feeling. I wasn't worried about, you know, if, if other people might see my vulnerability and, and wonder if, if perhaps I'm weak or what have you. I, I just, for the first time in a long time I felt some space and some spaciousness and for for at least a little while, I was able to allow myself to just feel everything I was feeling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was, well, it was freeing, and, and again, the word spacious comes to mind. Well, Scott, I have a question, and that is, once you discovered your soul child, your essence, how does that inform you on a day-to-day -day basis? We can't live there, but we know we can live in our egos, but how much better is your life now that you aren't living totally out of your ego, that you're able to access your soul child more readily? For one, it helps me to remember to not take myself so seriously and to have a little fun, mm -hmm. which I often wouldn't allow myself to do. Because ego fives are pretty serious. Oh, absolutely. And I still tend to be pretty serious most of the time, but I suppose more than anything, it helps me to realize that, you know, while my ego is 
you know, real in a sense. It's not concretely, absolutely real. Or at least the stories that it tells me, the interpretations of what reality is like, of like what this interaction I had with someone means, you know, what, what it tells me other people may be thinking about me, for instance, that that's not necessarily real, that I don't have to just get lost in those stories that the ego likes to spin, but I can say, well, okay, you know, acknowledge it and then move forward. But not as if not as if the ego story is just gospel, if you will. <laughs> because before, um, especially before I got into Enneagram, just I mean, dear God, all of us, our egos are constantly interpreting reality for us. They're telling us a story of about of who we are, what we're like, what other people are like, what they're thinking. We tend to forget that the way we perceive and process reality is just the way we perceive and process it. We project onto other people that they must be thinking about reality and experiencing it the same way we do. So we see them act in a certain way and we assume their motivations because we know what our motivations would be if we acted in that way. And just being more in touch with the soul child and, and being you know more knowledgeable about the Enneagram in general helped me to realize that that's, that's not necessarily what reality actually is, that it's just an interpretation that can be helpful to an extent, but when we mistake the interpretation for reality, we're, you know, we're ultimately going to have a bad time because we're not actually dealing with reality in, anymore. We're <laughs> just dealing with the story our ego tells us about it, but when we don't know the difference, well, I mean, just unnecessary well, suffering occurs I, I guess you could say well not to get too personal but can you think of a an example of on a day you know for any kind of experience that you've happened on a daily basis of some time when something happened you started to react totally out of your ego and now that you know your soul child you change what you were thinking or the way you were reacting and spoke more or reacted more out of your soul child. Can you think of an example and then how did that make you feel when you were able to do that? Because it's really transformational. Oh, absolutely. Gosh, I'm trying to think for one. Why are you trying to think for one? Well, then let me oh, yeah. ask you, Scott. Oh, okay. you, you recently talked to your parents yes. about what you were like when you were an infant and a very small toddler and can you speak to us about what you have found out and is it true that the characteristics they spoke of regarding you were characteristics of point eight yeah certainly well one thing they told me is that um, as, a, as a toddler, I was very strong-willed. Like, I wouldn't just do things because I was told to do them. I needed to know why. I needed to know why before I would do the thing. And even then, I, I still often wouldn't do the thing. I was definitely strong-willed in that way. Like, when, when I'd get a Lego set, I wouldn't build it just the way the Lego set was supposed to be built, I would, I would do my own thing with it. 
one story they shared with me um, when I was really only two or three, I would have church. <laughs> uh, my dad had this wooden fruit bowl that I, I suppose it was kind of a squarish shape, I don't know, but I'd turn it upside down and I'd use it as a pulpit and I would preach. It was all nonsense, pretty much, but we had to go through the full service. We had to have little flowers. We'd had our artificial flowers, and we'd use the little pie tins for the offering plates, and I had a broken <laughs> microphone that my uncle had given me, and uh, we had to do the singing, and we had to pass around the plates, and, yeah. mm -hmm. and then I would, I would get up there, and I would imitate the, mm -hmm. the preacher from the church, and I'd... Mm -hmm. I, you know, but it was just a bunch of nonsense and babbling, pretty much. I don't, I don't think I had any coherent theology emerge out of that. But <laughs> but you were in control. I was in control. Mm, yes, you were I the was. leader. You were the 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 seer. You were the one leading. Yeah, which is power. Yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And there was no self consciousness in that because I hadn't yet learned to be self conscious. No. I hear you even talk to your grandparents. Yes. Uh, what did they say about your early years? Oh, well, well they were there for the church services. <laughs> the, the play church services, for sure. One thing you're my in, You're in good company, by the way. Theologian Henry Nowen, very world-renowned, did the same thing. But he did it as a Catholic priest because his... Family was Catholic, not <laughs> not Baptist. I don't know what. Oh, uh, Wesleyan, but Wesleyan. It was very similar to okay. Baptist, and at least in terms of the service, as, okay. as I understand at least. Okay. Yeah, some, uh, something my grandmother mentioned was that I, um, I I would tend to talk to older people much more than I would talk to children my own age. Uh, I mean, I'm an only child, and there were no children in my neighborhood, but even. When it came time to go to preschool and such, I I didn't want to have a lot to do with the other kids. I would I would talk to the adults. The kids wouldn't know what I was talking about. Of course, I don't know if I knew what I was talking about. That's that's the way Grandmom reports it. Um, something Mom says is she would often say that I was a 65-year-old man in a five-year-old body. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that was authority. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I did mm -hmm. take on some degree of authority mm -hmm. until I learned to be self-conscious about doing that and yeah. then stopped. And, uh, Other characteristics of, of your soul? You know, you know I, I spent some time talking to my, my parents and my grandmother trying to come up with, uh, you know, trying to come up with memories and such. and. Something that struck me is, this isn't so much about my soul, but I feel like in some ways the ego was already forming. Like when I was just five, I was so studious. Uh, for Christmas when I was five, I got a, a Super Nintendo. It was the newest thing, and I loved it so much. And I also got a subscription to Nintendo Power Magazine, which had tips and such for video games. It was all the rage back in the 90s. You know, nowadays you just go on the internet, but I would study those. 
I would study those. And something that my mom told me was um, she remembers one time when my uncle, who, who also had the same video games, he called to ask about how to get through a specific level or something. And I just was like, oh, yeah, I know. They talked about that in issue number. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. And I went and I got the issue and... And and so maybe that was a little bit of the ego emerging, but not Mm -hmm. quite being in control, because Mm -hmm. I feel like that five ego was cataloging that knowledge, and maybe maybe that soul child eight was dispensing that knowledge helpfully rather than Mm -hmm. hoarding it. Because it comes on slowly. I mean, the ego actually the the kernels of it are are in us when we are born because we have to survive. We have to take the first breath. <gasps> Absolutely. Um, tell me, um, you, you've described all of these things. When you were present with your soul child during the exercise, did you feel any qualities of that little being that were soul qualities? Qualities of your own essence? Um, certainly. It was really, first and foremost, a feeling. I'd say one thing that struck me was how untroubled he was. Free. Yes, free. Holy freedom. Free, yes. And when when I did ask him questions, because in the exercise, you know, we were given some questions we might ask our soul child. Yeah. He was untroubled by the questions and just answered them to the best of his ability and just let it be. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I'm asked a question, I tend to, you know, oh, this is, I'm being tested. My knowledge is being tested. Yeah. I've got to make sure I don't look incompetent, you know. Mm-hmm. And and to get back to an earlier question, I suppose that's, that's some way remembering my soul child helps me is when I'm, when I'm asked a question that makes me start to feel defensive in terms of I've got to make sure I look competent I can check in on that soul child and remember no just with the virtue of simplicity you're just simply being asked a question just simply answer as best you can you're not being tested you're not being judged here they just ask you a question and you answer it as best you can and then you let it be and if you didn't answer it perfectly, so what? It's spacious, not tight. Absolutely. absolutely. Which is what you mentioned earlier. Yeah. That's good. What about the soul quality of kindness? Did you have any of that as a soul child? I don't know if I did. You don't know? Don't what about know. the soul quality of patience? Did you have any of that? Oh, gosh, you know, I'd like... What about joy? I'd like to think that I did... So maybe I still have need, some more remembering to do. Yeah, you can you can yeah. remember a little more, and that would be fabulous. So, because do you sense your soul is a soul of power, or is that alien to you? I I do feel that. I do feel the soul is being powerful and confident, and embodying a gentle strength and a willingness to. Well, to lead if necessary, but from the background and as gently and as hands-off as possible. And, you know, frankly, there, there have been times um, in the past couple years where that's 
sort of popped up. It's it's difficult to point to specific examples, but just times when there's like some kind of a group or what have you that's sort of gotten off track and just I've been able to say something that gets it back on track and it sure as heck doesn't come from me I'll, I'll put it that way I mean it comes through from the divine I mean and it's it's the soul that can be open to that because it's like it's like in my ego I'm just trying to figure it out I'm trying to figure out the thing to do and soul I can step back and be receptive for what may come up or come across when you answer from soul it's coming naturally absolutely. it's not being fo- uh, forced absolutely it's it's emerging organically from the whole instead of being manufactured in the silo of my ego so to speak very well put I don't know how to ask this other than was the soul child exercise a gateway into your understanding what your soul is or had you had other ways to encounter your soul it was certainly a gateway not necessarily the only gateway no you know leading up to that conference i i had read your book and before that i had read a book called radical wholeness by philip shepherd which i been known to talk about quite a bit and but before that nothing nothing in fact most of my adult life I was an atheist and of course that that's a loaded term because you know there's as many ways to be an atheist as there is to be a theist but I didn't believe in anything that I would have thought of at the time as supernatural or spiritual it just seemed I don't know, I'd never had any such experiences. And I guess the the web of concepts that I had built up over my life about what that kind of stuff is really stood in the way of me having any of those sorts of experiences. Like I knew, for instance, I knew what religion was about and I I wanted no part in it. But then after struggling with anxiety for a while and after really having just this period of deep, dark depression. Uh, I read this Radical Wholeness book almost out of desperation, and it got me thinking about things differently. Without using particularly religious language, it started talking about things that I consider spiritual now. Uh, But it invited me into it experientially through the body. So I started to have little glimmers, and then from that, that opened my mind enough to be able to, well, to read your book, <laughs> because I, I tried to read it before, uh, but as soon as, for instance, God was mentioned, I just, no, I, I know what that's about, and I don't want any part of that, you know, but I was able to read your book with fresh eyes and really see, you know, take it as it is instead of being inhibited by my preconceptions, I suppose. And then having the backyard exercise at the conference, it, it was the first really tangible experience of my soul. And it just it really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Because I've really come to understand that these are, you know, spiritual things are experiential things. They aren't 
conceptual things. There are certainly plenty of concepts about spiritual things, and they can certainly be helpful in facilitating that experience and, and helping us to understand and interpret that experience that we've had. But there's always a danger of mistaking the concept for the experience and becoming so certain that, you know, this concept isn't just a way to describe this experience, but this concept is the way the experience is, and then it just becomes a roadblock. So the body center, of course, we've had other podcasts and on the three centers, but the body center was your entree into understanding these concepts and the language of these. And that's the center that your soul child is in. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Good. Yeah, the, uh, the, the stuff from Philip, it helped me to understand that we're more than just the brain in our heads. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, in fact, we, we have three brains. And I don't know if there's conclusive science, but there is science and evidence to support this. There's a brain in the belly and, and a brain in the heart as well. I mean, our, the Heart Math Institute certainly knows about the heart brain. But something he says is if, if the brain in the head is where we consciously think, the brain in the belly is where we can consciously be. And before that, I had never thought about well, conscious being. <laughs> and it was just all thinking, thinking all the time, nonstop, and, and no awareness that there were other ways to be. Wow. You could probably go on and on. In fact, you'll probably be a teacher yourself of these <laughs> concepts, if, if I'm prognosticating correctly here. But it's a pleasure to have talked with you today, and I'm so glad that we're going to have Philip Shepard down to our training program to be a part of us next month in the ICB training. So if anybody out there wants to join, you, Lark, can tell you these uh, specifics. Yeah, of course. Please continue to follow us with our, with our ICB podcast, The Real Enneagram. You can find us on all podcast outlets. And you can also follow Dr. Howell's daily meditations on the Institute for Conscious Beings Facebook page. So you can get the meditations daily there and our podcast. And if you're interested in our training program or any conferences that we have, you can go to our website, which is www.vicb.org. And if you go to events, you will see our information on our upcoming conference in October. It'll be October 8th, 9th, and 10th at Camp McDowell in Nauvoo, Alabama, which is a little north of Birmingham, Alabama. So you can find out all about our upcoming conference and our ICB training program there on our website. So, Scott, I want to thank you for being with us thank today you, and this peaceful afternoon. And Dr. Howell, as always, thank you. Thank you. Thank you and we'll look forward to sharing another podcast with you all very soon. Thank so, you. bye for now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.